just as a format for this, in general, we will uh, try to do a Q&A on a regular basis, maybe every six to eight weeks. Uh, all questions are open, whether it's from our morning or evening study or just in general, general questions from your study. And I'll do my best to research them occasionally from uh, time to time, sometimes more often than I'd like. I'd have to get back with you, but I try to answer them on the spot and do uh, the best that I can. All right. First question. Uh, this one doesn't have to necessarily do with Revelation. The question is, where were Abraham's descendants first called the Jews? Uh, that's a great question. I appreciate that. The answer is, the word doesn't really appear before the time of Jeremiah, around 627 B.C. Originally, it denoted one who belonged to the tribe of Judah, or the two tribes of the southern kingdom, which were Judah and the half of Benjamin. 1 Kings 12:21. You can find that about right there. Later, though, the meaning really broadened. It applied to every one of the Hebrew race that would turn from captivity. And you can find the scripture references, Esther 2, 5, Matthew 2, 2. And uh, in the early days of Hezekiah, the language of Judah was called Jewish. And you can find those references in 2 Kings 18, 26 through 28, Nehemiah 13, 24, and Isaiah 36, 11, and 13. Um, in general, many times we'll go straight to the passage to kind of help, but in, that's just a general question. Where were they first called uh, Jews, that kind of gives you an, an overview uh, of, of that. Second question, uh, blood on the moon, literal or figurative? Uh, blood on the moon, literal or figurative? You can find that in Revelation 6.12. If you'd like to turn there, you can. And this will kind of be how we'll run the, run the night, just kind of flip through, take some time, look in our Bible, see what it has to say about the, uh, those things. Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. John is relaying what he is seeing. He says in verse 12, I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became, and here's the key word, like blood. Okay, And uh, as we've talked about before when we were t did our series on how to study your Bible, uh, the use of the word like, the uh, use of a simile, uh, has a way to approach it, which is the same as we approach the rest of the scriptures. We use the literal rule. So when you interpret the scriptures, you interpret it literally, and that just necessarily means that you understand scripture in the natural, normal sense. That applies as well to figures of speech. Figures of speech become obvious to us, and so the normal meaning of the word is the meaning. That's what you accept. There's no secret meaning. There's no hidden meaning. There's no meaning behind the meaning. It just says what it says, and even with figurative language, uh, like it is here, you take it as figurative, which is the natural, normal sense. Uh, if, I, you know, if we say he's as big as a house, he's as tall as a tree, we understand what is meant uh, by its reference. Figures of speech are part of normal language, and they're easily recognized and accepted. And metaphors and similes are part of normal language. And we have figures of speech in the Bible. It's part of normal language. So the answer is, it is figurative. The moon is the color of blood. So it's not blood on the moon, as John would indicate it, but like blood. So the moon then is the color of blood. And just as a footnote, the upshot is that God spoke plainly, so you accept the literal. And uh, as you uh, look through the scriptures and you study them, even if it's symbolic, there's a literal contextual understanding of the passage. It may take some time to dig in and find out what is meant. But when the Lord gave us his word, he didn't give us mysteries. He revealed mysteries. He wants us to understand him. He's not trying to hide himself from us. And if you remember, just keep this in mind, once you reject the literal interpretation of Scripture, you soon become hopelessly lost because it is impossible then to kind of determine exactly what the Scriptures mean. And the customary meaning of the word is what God intended. And when God gave us the book, 
he gave us uh, an understanding of mysteries. And so when you think about that, then when you think about a Kabbalistic interpretation, a secret plot, a secret meaning or whatever, we can just reject all of that. We know the Lord did not set that in his word. He didn't set an esoteric meaning in the scriptures. Just some people will understand and the other people won't. All right, that's not how it's set up. We don't go about the scripture interpretation that way. Uh, some kind of religious speculation based on some mystical insight. All right, very popular in medieval Europe, very popular again now. And so um, the mystery of numerology in the Bible and all of those things, you just can reject all of that outright. You start out with a literal understanding of the sense of the word. And uh, God has spoken. He's spoken clearly. We take it at face value. Uh, God told the prophets, for example, Isaiah, he says, Listen to me, speak. Be careful not to let any of my words fall to the ground. Tell them exactly what I tell you. He told Jeremiah basically the same thing. He made it clear. We just relay it. Okay? Now, it takes, I'm not saying it doesn't take some work. We've talked about how to go about that in our earlier study. Uh, but in general, uh, we understand these figures of speech to be just exactly what they are. And we can, with a little bit of work, usually come up with the correct understanding and we don't have to have a big question mark over it. Question again. Um, the 144,000, how, why, and when are they marked? And it was a multiple question. It says, does God mark wicked people? And where are we in that number, uh, Christians, in the 144,000? Well, it's a multiple question, so let's just start with Revelation 7.1, if you would flip there. Revelation 7.1. Let's read all the way through verse 8. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or in the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the, uh, the earth and the sea, saying, verse 3, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Verse 4, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Verse 5, From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. Verse 6, And the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. Verse 7, from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. Verse 8, and from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Who are they? They're the 144,000 Jews, 12,000 out of every tribe. And uh, as we said before, the tribe of Dan is omitted here, uh, likely because of gross idolatry. On many occasions, and there are multiple places in the scripture where you can see that, and Manasseh seems to be there in his place. And we'll find as you look at the list, Joseph is not normally listed because Manasseh and Ephraim received his inheritance, but instead here you have Dan left out. And throughout the scriptures we have some tribes left out from time to time. Gad and Asher are not mentioned in First Chronicles 27.16. And sometimes God's children miss out on things, as my wife was talking about before. Because uh, of sin, God had planned, some things that God had planned for them because of sin, they miss out on the good things. It still happens today. Uh, of course, Dan is restored. Ezekiel 48, they're included in the kingdom layout. Uh, it's just they're not allowed to serve in this capacity during the tribulation period. Now, in Revelation 7.1, of course, those first three or four verses, it talks about the sealing. And uh, look back there, if you would. Verse 1, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, 
so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Verse 4, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, what's this saying? Well, right about the time that uh, this Holocaust is going to begin, there's going to be Jews who are already saved, saved no doubt, uh, right after the rapture, and uh, like the martyrs under the altar that we looked at before, likely saved right after the rapture. They look around, see the earth is becoming exactly what the scriptures say it will become. Uh, perhaps you shared the gospel with them or some other believer did and they realized the truth of it at the, uh, a little bit too late and missed the rapture. And so uh, they believe these 144,000 believe Jesus Christ to be their Savior and Lord and they're going to go through uh, this time period uh, of, of uh, difficult times and they'll not be able to be killed and they're not, because they're not going to be able to be hurt. Um, it's not hard for the Lord to do that. They're going to be sealed uh, before this uh, time of this judgment is poured out on the earth that we just read about and really kind of set the stage for. Uh, they're going to be sealed. They're going to be marked from this invasion of demon hosts. In uh, Revelation 9.4, we're going to see that others are sealed as well. And uh, we're going to see their offspring are sealed. It's, no, it's normally believed that the offspring of those 144,000 for a time period are also sealed and they're protected from demon uh, damage, damage done by demon invasions, but they're not going to be protected by trial. Uh, they're not going to be protected from suffering because they're going to see when they we'll see when they come to heaven. They have been suffering, and uh, nor will they be protected from the Antichrist's attack, just from the demon hordes that we see attacking uh, during this time of the tribulation. They are protected. It says that in verse two and verse three, nothing can harm them. Uh, and this is not the first time that God's done this. Ezekiel nine, you can look there if you would. And I think this is a good study to look at anyway. Just It's very encouraging to see uh, the, the power of the Lord and all that he does. Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 1. If you want to look there, go ahead. <laughs> verse 1, he says, Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now, just to give you a little, little uh, context of this passage, here we're looking at, from a heavenly, heavenly perspective, the invasion, uh, final invasion and destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon. And so the Lord is looking at this judgment. It's on its way. It's going to happen. But he's also seeing it from a heavenly perspective. And he sees these destroying angels coming in. And he sees this person dressed in linen. Verse 3. And look at what happens. Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case. Verse 4. The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem. I put a mark on the foreheads of, men, of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others he said in my hearing, Go through the city after him and strike and do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark and you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. Verse 7, And he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And thus they went out, struck down the people of the city, 
As they were striking the people, and I alone was left, I fell on my face and cried out, saying, Alas, Lord God, are you destroying the whole remnant of Israel by pouring out your wrath on Jerusalem? And then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is very, very great. And the land is filled with blood, and the city is full of perversion, for they say the Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. Verse 10. But as for me, my eye will have no pity, nor will I spare, but I will bring their conduct upon their heads. And then behold, the man clothed in linen, at whose loins was the writing case reported, saying, I have done just as you have commanded me. And so he went through, and he marked. Now, the interesting part about this is what's happening here is, now re- realize that in, in history, okay, there's already been several deportations of people to Babylon, right? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has come multiple times. He's carried off Daniel and a number of the nobles, and then he carried off a whole bunch more, and then they're here to destroy the city. But the angels are actually at work doing uh, this destruction, and from the Lord's perspective, perspective, this is what's going on. But even in all of that, okay, realize that even in all of that, even those that remain who've been instructed to turn themselves over to Nebuchadnezzar, don't resist him, don't pick up the sword and fight him. If you pick up the sword and fight him, you'll be slain. But you can go, the Lord says, you have my permission, go into the land of your bondage. I'll prosper you there. I'm going to bring you up, raise you up there. You'll have families and you'll own houses and you'll do all those things. I'll bless you. And so even in this, for these people who remain, there are some who are faithful to the Lord. And so what does the Lord do? He doesn't deal with the righteous like he deals with the wicked, does he? He sees those who are righteous, those who groan over the abominations of Israel, because he said Jerusalem's, uh, Israel's, uh, uh, their iniquity is very, very great, and they groan over that and have groaned over that, and they are marked, so they're spared from what? Destruction, right? They're spared from being killed. And so it's a marvelous thing to think about. The Lord does this. Uh, Malachi is another great example of this, that uh, the Lord does mark uh, righteous people and take care of them, and he also marks wicked, and that's one of the questions is God mark wicked people. But Malachi 3.16 um, now, now, you, now what your context is people have returned from the land. Uh, they've found themselves back right into some of the same things they were doing before. The prophets are pointing it out to them and saying, listen, this is what was happening before. Now you're doing the same thing. And uh, Malachi 3.16 in particular, there are those that says, verse 16, who feared the Lord, spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and those who esteem his name. Isn't that great? Here's what's happening. There's a whole bunch of people who are doing exactly what those Israel of old did before uh, Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and carried everyone off and laid everything waste. And they're back doing it, but there are some who are what? Some who are not, Right? There are some who are there, and they're doing what the Lord told them uh, to do, and they're worried. We don't, want to be, we don't want to be dealt with like the wicked are being dealt with, right? And so they cry out to the Lord, and what does the Lord say? He says, uh, a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. And so you will again distinguish. Listen, this is so great. This is, this is part of God's nature. Okay? This is why you can understand there's a rapture. Part of what you can understand, the, the fact that there's a rapture, that you understand the Lord does not deal with the righteous like he deals with the wicked. Look at verse 18. So you will again distinguish, again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Okay? And so it's not, it's not unusual for names to be written down, for people to be marked who are righteous, and they're going to be spared because the Lord doesn't deal with the two the same ever. And so during the tribulation time, you have 144,000 Jews going around preaching the gospel, and they are going to be marked. And it's a marvelous thought that the Lord will preserve them, and we know, uh, are fairly certain, their offspring as well uh, from the demon hordes that are going to be invading. 
And the Jews are going to become the witness they refuse to be in the Old Testament. So realize, this is 144,000 Jews. They've come to faith shortly after the rapture. They're here marked so that this demon horde is not going to hurt them. And they are going to be the witness that the Old Testament wanted them to be, and they never were. Romans chapter 11, verse 19. And you can turn there if you'd like. Romans 11, verse 19 really kind of sums that up for us as uh, we're going to kind of see uh, Paul talk in general about this uh, marvelous thought of Israel being restored and doing what the Lord had desired them to do all along. Romans 11:19, And that's why they're here. Okay, that's why they're here. Um, Romans 11:19. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Now, Paul's in the middle of an argument. He knows what Jews are going to say when he gives this gospel out. He knows what Jews are going to say when he talks about the Gentiles being grafted in and all that. And so he makes his case here. And uh, we won't go into that necessarily. I think just the overview of the passage will give you a sense uh, of this understanding. Uh, Romans 11:19. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Verse 20. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Okay, so you can see this distinction he's drawing between the Jew and the Gentile. Those who uh, had the covenant, they thought, with God, and God was obligated to save them, but were cast away from unbelief because of unbelief. And then those who come to God by the same type of faith that Abraham has. Okay, the distinction between the two. And uh, verse 21, uh, or back up, verse 20, that last part of the verse, do not be conceited, but fear. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, speaking of the Jews, speaking of Israel, he will not spare you either. Verse 22, behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Now that doesn't mean you can lose your salvation, right? Because otherwise it'd be, it'd be uh, contradicting what we learned this morning. It's just a simple fact that if you become like the Jew at some point and desire not, and you, uh, your descendants don't believe, then don't think you're going, to be, you're going to be kept because God made all these promises and sacrificed his son for you. You still have to uh, put that on, you have to uh, apply that by faith just like anyone else did. Okay? Verse 23, And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Verse 24, for if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Verse 25, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. This is great, isn't it? This is a good shot of humility for those of us who understand how to come to faith and wonder why the Jew can't see it. All right? Uh, we just should be grateful, Paul says, that we are able to be grafted in. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And that's where we live now, isn't it? We're waiting for that, the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. There's that pause there uh, for, that the Lord has allowed for the church age and that the fullness of Gentiles to come in. Verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But for the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now you've been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also 
may be shown mercy, for God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Now, lots of cool stuff there that we'll get to as we look through Romans. But just in general, understand that there's going to come a time when history, in in, in the the future uh, still, when it's going to be about Israel, okay? And that really is what we have in the book of Revelation. We're going to shift our focus from the church age, and we don't hear about the church anymore, and we don't talk about, uh, unless it's the bride of Christ when we get to the end, we don't talk about the church anymore because it's not about the church. After we get through the end of chapter 3, now it's about Israel. Now it's about restoring the kingdom to Jesus. Now it's about Israel being the witness that they were always supposed to be in the Old Testament and will get to be, and all true Israel will be saved. And we're going to see this mag- magnificent thing. And at the beginning of that, the seed of that is 144,000. Now, the answer, so we know who that is. The answer, does God ever mark wicked people? Jude 4 says some are, people are marked for destruction. So I think in general we can say, yes, that God has marked some for destruction. And, uh, and in, in the final answer, of course, uh, where are we in the 144,000? Uh, this is not the church. Okay, uh, We're not in this number. Uh, but as we witness, we may be sowing seeds in the hearts of those who could be part of that number because we're going to be in heaven at this time. Okay? That's a great question. Um, another 144,000 question. Uh, is the 144,000 of chapter 7 the same as the 144,000 of chapter 14? And the answer to that is yes. Look at Revelation 14.1 if you'd like. You just have a location that's different. Okay? Uh, 144,000 of chapter 7, where are they? They're on the earth. They're doing their witnessing. Uh, they're seeing this great revival come about. All true Israel will come to faith. We're going to see uh, many, many millions of people turn uh, to God in faith, uh, in repentance and faith towards Christ. And uh, Revelation 14, now we just see them in a different location. Verse 1, it says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, uh, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who'd been purchased from the earth. Isn't that great? They're going to get to sing a song before the throne that nobody else knows. And I just think that's awesome. They're going to go through something no one else has had to go through. They're going to see things they never uh, were going to see before. They're going to experience a protection from the Lord and a power in preaching uh, that the Lord had always wanted from his, from his nation. And they're going to get to sing a song. Verse 4, These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. First fruits of whom? the Jews, right? Isn't that marvelous? And no lie was found in their mouth, for they are blameless. And so you just have a different location for them. They've moved from earth to heaven, around the throne, and they sing a song no one else is able to sing. And the Lord honors them and uh, looks at them as the first fruits uh, to God and to the Lamb. All right? Um, uh, Question, what are the different ways that scholars interpret the book of Revelation? And uh, that is a very long answer. I'll abbreviate that answer uh, uh, for you just in general. If you want to jot these down, it's great. If you don't, uh, if you know these things, it's great. I'll just review them. Of course, no New Testament book has more interpretive challenges than Revelation. It has tremendous imagery, vivid symbolism, but it's really produced basically for interpretive approaches in in, uh, academic circles, and there are some variances 
uh, out there and some combinations out there. And even I was just reading a few minutes ago about some other combinations that guys are coming up with. But in general, uh, there are kind of four thoughts. One is preterist. Preterist. P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. Preterist view. And in general, a preterist view is uh, Revelation is a description of first century events in the Roman Empire. And uh, all prophetic portions are already fulfilled. That would be the preterist view. Uh, this view also includes the gospel narratives in uh, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. Okay, that's a preterist view. There are a few, and I just kind of jotted a few problems down. And there are many, but I'll just jot a few, and, and uh, perhaps this will help you kind of sort them out. And um, there are so many different thoughts out there anymore, and people writing so many different things. And I, I'm sure you're, you're like me. You read through there, you, you just... He's starting to identify, well, why is he saying that? And that's part of this thought process. Why is he switching over? There's just so many things that are all mixed up. So once again, we kind of take the word with what it says. But preterist view, a couple of problems with the preterist view, really inconsistent with the book's own claim to be prophecy. Okay, That's the first big problem I have. The book says that it's prophecy. All right, Chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 22, verse 7, and verse 10, and verse 18, and verse 19. It says it's prophecy. That, that contradicts with the book's own claim. Uh, number two, it's not possible to see all the events in the Revelation already fulfilled. Okay? And uh, uh, it's inconsistent with the gospel accounts of the second coming. The second coming of Christ obviously did not occur uh, in the first century. Okay? So you're going to have some difficult, uh, difficulty reconciling those things. That's Preterist view, all right? And once again, it's summed up. Um, yes? Very good. Thank you, Jim, for, for adding in. I appreciate you doing that. Um, that is exactly right. That is the, that is the, the most popular view of what, what we would understand to be non-believing liberal scholars, those who would be um, tapped for special programs on discovery and science and all that. Hey, this is, this is what revelation means. That's going to be the major view you're going to see people relate on television. Okay? And so I pop that in first. Secondly, histor- historist, uh, or just a historical perspective of, of revelation. Um, Historicist, uh, I've spoken too many words today. I think I'm at the end of my words. Uh, Revelation is, really, this is a summary of kind of a a historical perspective. Revelation is a description of church history from the apostles to the present. Uh, It uses symbolism to represent the destruction of Rome, the rise of the Catholic Church, uh, the world wars, natural disasters, all of that stuff. Uh, And so this this, uh, opinion of, of Revelation, which is kind of a historical opinion, uh, has a number of problems. First of all, many uh, conflicting interpretations of the actual historical events contained in the book of Revelation, as you may well imagine. How do you make uh, these invasions of the demon hosts be World War One? How do you do all these types of things? You can see the confusion that starts to come into play there. As soon as one guy gets it all worked out, the next guy comes along and says, no, that wasn't that. It had to be this. And so uh, all these historical events can't uh, be forced on the book of Revelation. Number two, this view removes any meaning for the ones to whom the book was originally written. All right, And so if it's just the history of the church unfolded, then the people who read the book initially couldn't possibly understand it because it didn't have anything to do with them. Thirdly, it just really disregards, and this is the main one, I think, the time limitations placed on the book governing the unfolding of the book. Right? There are time limitations. A certain thing has to be done by three and a half years. Then you have another three and a half years, and then it's over. And you're going to have a trouble with that if you take uh, a historical perspective that uh, it's kind of the history of the church. All right? And so you don't have the exact time uh, spelled out. Thirdly, idealist 
uh, what you could call an idealist view. Revelation is a symbolic struggle between good uh, and evil that's gone on since the beginning of time. And, and I think that other than the preterist view, that also would be a very common view you would see on TV. This is just a, just a book about the struggle between good and evil. All right? There's an article in the U.S. News or something last week basically summing the book of Revelation up that way. There's just a, a great story about the struggle between good and evil uh, that has gone on from the beginning of time. Here's some problems with that. Of course, the problems with the other ones. Uh, no historical setting, no predictive prophecy, which the book says that it has and points out those things in it. And so it ignores the stated purpose of the book and then becomes just a collection of stories that teach spiritual truth. Okay? And so we, we can reject that as a, as a way to, um, uh, to understand the book of Revelation. And uh, remember, as we're talking about the false teachers in the church, one of the ways to spot a false teacher really is a messed up eschatology. All right? Uh, when you start getting all in these directions that we just talked about, that should make flags go up right away. Uh, hold on, you know, you, t- you take, uh, if they take a literal approach and there's yet to be future judgment, which means men have to answer to God for their actions, false teachers always want to get rid of that, okay? They don't want any future uh, face-to-face with God in judgment, all right? So those have to be dealt out uh, at the beginning. So, and finally, kind of a futurist, uh, futurist uh, look, which uh, is, the, is the way that we would approach uh, we, would, we would understand the word to approach it. Uh, the events then recorded in chapter 6 through 22 are yet what? They're still future, right? We wait for them to occur. They, are, they literally and sometimes through symbolism represent actual people and events yet to appear. Okay? It lines up with the stated purpose of the book, uh, a predictive prophecy, and a grammatical historical approach to the book is consistent with the rest of Scripture and with the great themes of Scripture. Okay? So you line up with the way the Bible has described itself before in other places. It lines up well with other books of prophecy. It has the same chronology. And so uh, we don't have to struggle too much with that. Um, of course, uh, you have to receive it by faith, right? It's impossible to understand these things, except the Holy Spirit allows us to understand them. And so we understand why people who are uh, liberal scholars or who we understand to be non-believers are giving out the false information because they are not able to understand and comprehend what the Scriptures say without the Holy Spirit's presence. Okay, so those are in general uh, just kind of four views. Once again, there are many other little modifications of those views, and they just get uh, in ad infinitum. You just can read about them forever. Uh, but I think that as we approach the Scripture from a literal perspective, it, what it says is what it means, uh, then we can come down uh, in the side of that uh, stream of truth and just kind of be right in the middle of it. Question. When is the rapture in the timeline of the book of Revelation? And the answer, just write it in between chapter 3 and chapter 4. All right, we move from the church age to uh, future, okay, and to the judgments and the tribulation. And so you can uh, kind of write that right there. We come to chapter 4, we leave the church age. And uh, a lot of other places you can read about it. You can go to places like 1 Thessalonians 4 and John 14. And there are many other places you can read about the rapture itself, about we understand uh, that it occurs about right there. Revelation does not mention the church again until after, uh, at, at the end of chapter 3 until it calls it the bride. All right? And uh, it's one of those little clues that help us know that this time in history is not for the church. The church is gone. And if you remember some of the themes that we've talked about as we've gone through Romans 1, 19-23, God's wrath will break on non-believers. It's stored up for a future break and it's being revealed in the ever-increasing wickedness we see around us. And then we're going to see things called the wrath of the Lamb earthquake and the cup of his wrath poured full strength on the earth. You realize that he's not talking about what? He's not talking about the church, is he? 
And once again, as we looked at those other passages earlier, remember the Lord does not deal with the wicked like he deals with the righteous. Okay? He's not pouring the cup of his fury uh, undiluted on the church. He's not pouring out his wrath, his wrath of the Lamb earthquake, on the church. He's taking the church away. Okay? So once again, uh, there's not these, you know, for, this one verse, this is it, okay, this is, you just you grab a hold of this, and this is the one you can say, okay, this proves everything. It's just an understanding, as you work your way through the word, that it works together well when you understand that the Lord doesn't deal with the righteous like he deals with the wicked. And that this time period, this tribulation time period, is meant to reveal his wrath. And even in the middle of that wrath being revealed, he's put 144,000, he's put two witnesses there, and he's going to see people come to faith even in the middle of uh, this judgment poured out on the earth. Okay? Um, last question. Well, we can save it. We're already at 7.35. And it's a longer one. Um, we'll save it. But here's the question. How does a person glorify God? I love that question. That is a great question. But the answer to that is longer than the time that we have. And uh, so we'll save that for the next time. And if you've got more questions, please email them to me. I would love to, uh, to include them in this. And uh, unless you want your name mentioned, I won't mention your name. I just figure if one person has a question, uh, I bet more do. And uh, it's a joy for me to have fun doing the digging. And uh, let's be dismissed in a word of prayer. All right? Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to be again in your word, to look again to the marvelous nature of it. Thank you for the questions that we, all of us have, that as we dig into your word, we can uh, many times find uh, the wonderful answer to uh, in the places that you've placed them. And Lord, I pray that we'll be all, all of us about rightly dividing your word, uh, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We're so grateful uh, that we're going to be able to spend eternity digging into the knowledge of you and the things you've revealed. And uh, Lord, we know that we will not exhaust that because you're an infinite and uh, your attributes are infinite. And we're grateful that uh, you can put in our mind and our heart the desire to know you apart from your work with Christ on the cross and the new person you've placed uh, in this physical body, we would have no desire to know you. We know that uh, we all, at some point in time, ran from your knowledge and despised your word. And Lord, in your gracious nature and your, and your marvelous uh, desire to know us and love us, you have given us uh, salvation. And you've forgiven all of our wickedness and our turning away from you and our uh, deception and our rebellion. And so, Lord, thank you for the fun it is to dig into your word, the desire it is to know you, the richness as coming away from a time like this, even more desires to know more about you than we were when we started, because that's just the nature of your Holy Spirit working through your word. So sanctify us by your word, it's truth, and Lord, I pray that we'll be more like your son by doing the things he would be about doing, and sharing our faith and living a life that reflects your own glory. Uh, and we give you praise today in Jesus' name, and all God's people said,